This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference, When All Has Been Heard, in Houston, Texas. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Messages are going to be recorded anyway, so we'll pick them up later. <laughs> Um, there's something special about actually being in the room. So you are the extra credit people. You are the you're the high standard, the gold mark that we want to reach. Well done. Um, again, uh, just a reminder that the the handouts there are handouts for each of these presentations. I have the physical copy, which at this GYC is of a rare find indeed, um, because there are no physical handouts. But you do have on the GYC app. Um, on the um, seminar sessions, uh, this one entitled Mining the Manual. And as I look at the crowd, apparently I could have just as well uh, titled it like Brussels sprouts and root canals, you know, <laughs> something very, very appealing, you know. And I know that there's, a, well, we'll get into that in a minute, but the title of it is Mining the Manual, and uh, I'll launch into why that's important in just a second. But the resource that goes along the handout is in the GYC app. So if you go to this seminars, and go to total member involvement, you scroll down to the session that we're in, Mining the Manual, you push on the View uh, Seminar resource, and uh, it'll pop up the very notes that I have in my hand. So they are accessible to you. Now, whether you can like download those or print them off or copy and paste, I have no idea what you can do with them. It's a whole new world out there. But uh, at least you can follow along in this session if you have a smartphone or any other tablet device thing. All right. With those preliminary comments out of the way, I'm just going to dive into our uh, message after a quick word of prayer. I see that we've got a few people, so I'll maybe I'll just wait just a second. Uh, the door of probation remains open. That's good. That's good. Oh, the door is closing by an invisible hand. It's like we're in the ark. It's very nice. All right. Um, so for those of you who are running the Audioverse or whatever, this is where we're going to begin our recording. So I'd like to say good morning, everyone. And uh, before we get started, let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this new day of life that you've given us. Thank you for the physical food we've had and the spiritual feast we've already had this morning. And Lord, now as we move into more and more practical uh, applications of this total member involvement concept, Help us to understand more clearly the part you would have each one of us to play and help us to become a light in our churches as we seek to transform by your grace the often nominal state of our churches. Lord, raise up a generation of Seventh-day Adventist members who are missionaries for you. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Now, the manual that I'm talking about is the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual. A new edition has just been put out. You know that they revised the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual at the General Conference session. So for the longest time, most of this presentation was presented uh, based on uh, documentation from the 2010, the Black Edition, of the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual. Uh, in 2015, as you do every five years now, you have a general conference session, and one of those things is to look and revise and make additions, amendments, or whatever uh, to the Seventh-day Adventist Church Manual. 
And in 2015, that was done. It took quite a long time. I'm not exactly sure why for the 2015 edition to actually be launched and put out in publication. But now, as in just the last couple of months, it is out there and it is red. Ooh. Uh, they changed the color because when you had them on the shelves, the one before the black was a blue, if I, I think, and before the blue was a green. And I, if I remember my history, every five years, you get a new color on your shelf. Uh, but now we've gone from black to red. And um, those additions have been included in the notes that you have. So the notes that you have include the freshest, hot off the press, Seventh Adventist Church manual stuff. But I know that in a crowd of Seventh Adventists, particularly faithful, conservative Seventh Adventists, which I'm making the bold assumption that everyone in this room intends to be a faithful Adventist because you're here, that even the notion of having a manual at all can be controversial. I get that. I've been in those discussions. I've had them with myself. Not that you're supposed to have discussions with yourself, but sometimes I do. And I can understand the argumentation from both sides as to whether we should have a manual or not. Okay? And what I want to do before we even dive into it, because I want to address that issue before we dive into what the manual says, because you might be thinking, well, so what if the manual says it? It's wrong that we should have it. It's an abomination. Literally, I know that sounds a little hyperbolic, but there are people who have very strong feelings about this. So let me give a little bit of a history review of where the idea of where this church manual even comes from, okay? Uh, it's not a new thing. It's been around for quite a while in the Seventh Adventist Church. Um, and actually, you can go ahead, and there's, there's specific dates about this. In 1878, now, to very briefly review the history of the Seventh Adventist Church, the first date in Adventist history most everybody knows is October 22, 1844, right? But let me be clear. There were no Seventh-day Adventists in 1844, right? There were Advent believers who might have been Methodist or Christian Connection or some other Baptist, something like that. William Miller was a Baptist. You know, Ellen White came from the Methodist Church. And, you know, James White was Christian Connection. There was Joseph Bates and these other individuals who were around that era. But there were no Seventh-day Adventists because there was no organized church. In fact, the doctrines that would later be uh, embodied in what we now call the Seventh-day Adventist Church were being formulated and conceived of at that time. Obviously, they weren't formed. They were, sitting, they were being discovered, let's say. The Lord was revealing them through a process of time. And that was mentioned the other night in our message about the sanctuary, for example. Uh, October 23, 1844, they started to get the first light on that. And it started to develop. And it took several years. The same thing with the Sabbath understanding. You might realize that when Sister White and James White were introduced to the Sabbath concept, they thought it was nice but not important. Later on, they started to see the light in it. The Lord revealed more and more over time. And then it became a pillar of the movement, right? But it took a while. They didn't say it was wrong. They just said, eh. We don't see it yet, and it developed over time. So, but, but these, the distinctive S's of Advent, the Sabbath, the sanctuary, the state of the dead, the second coming, the, the spirit of prophecy itself, these all kind of took a little bit to formulate and come together. Now, so that, was the, that occurred in the late 1840s, after the disappointment, 1844, 5, 6, 7, 8, right around there, 9. And, and by the 1850s and 60s, the issue was, now that we have this body of belief, then they started talking about, what do we do with it? Well, we got to present it to people, you know? And uh, the, the era of church growth started to happen, but it wasn't a church yet, you know? It was still an, a, a kind of a scattered flock of believers who had these distinctives, distinctive points of faith. Um, then 
So the, the real issue for about 10 years was the issue of organizing at all. There were some people that said, the moment you take a name and become incorporated, you have become Babylon. We came out of Babylon, not just create a new Babylon to come into, right? There was a long time of discussion. But of course, by the 1860s, early 1860s, the need for organization for owning uh, properties like, say, publishing houses and sending out ministers and paying them with systematic benevolence, which they, in the development of that, called it Sister Betsy, which is a fun thing to look into. Um, but all of those structural things were in the uh, late 1850s, early 1860s coming about. Until 1863, we had the organization, the General Conference. Um, so though the movement started in the 1840s, it wasn't until the mid-1860s that there was an organized movement. But even then, there was no like governing document of how churches are to be run. Remember, if you were at our session about It's Time to Eat Grandpa, we looked at the development of hovering pastors kind of thing. And where did they get the concept of how many pastors to have at each church and where they should go? They got it directly from the Bible. They said that's what we thought the apostolic view was, and we just kind of followed the Word of God. This seems like a pretty straightforward, good idea. Um, but by the 1870s, the church work was expanding rapidly, as we mentioned, and it was going outside of the United States at this time, and they were saying, like, we've got a large territory, and we can't just, like, check in with each other, horse and buggy kind of way. We need some sort of consistency. And so in 1878, at a general conference session, um, discussions regarding the formation of a Seventh Adventist Church manual began in earnest. They said, you know, we're getting so big and so broad that we really should have some sort of unifying uh, process for how we operate these local churches. You need a manual. And to help people in the field, if they can't check in with someone of long experience, what if they just had a handy-dandy manual that said, here's how you do a nominating committee, or here's how you do a funeral, here's how you do whatever it is you do. You know? um, thus, it was in 1882. They had several years of discussion about this. But at the 1882 General Conference session, it was recommended that a subcommittee be commissioned to write, quote, a manual of instructions for church officers. They said, all right, somebody write down all the stuff we think needs to be written down. Let's bring it back and review it and toss it, toss it around a little bit more. A three-man committee prepared documents that were intended to be reviewed at the upcoming General Conference session. At that point, General Conference sessions were every year. And you might think, how can you pull off a general conference session every year? How do you get 70,000 people to... It wasn't like that then, all right? We're talking delegates in the, you know, dozens, 40, 50, 60, something like that, maybe if that, in those, those years, those earlier years. So getting, you know, the same 50 people in a room is not that hard every year, and you can kind of... And they're all close by. I mean, it was, it was different. Anyway, so the purpose was, in 1882, they said, all right, after the discussion started in 1878... They came back for several years of that, and they said, okay, fine. Three people put together the documents that should be reviewed for a potential manual and review it next year, right? And uh, these documents were then published in a series of 13 articles in the Review and Herald during the summer ahead of the 1883 General Conference session. So in 1882, let me get the chronology right here, a three-man committee was appointed to start putting together these documents that might be considered at the next session for a potential manual. And ahead of the 1883 session, they published them for wide distribution throughout the membership and the Review and Herald, so it's a transparent process. 
So the idea of having study committees and publishing it ahead of time before your decision, this is not a new thing that came up with TOSC, by the way. This is a long-held tradition. And so everyone had read these materials. Uh, there wasn't anything, uh, from, I've never found anything that said that anything in them was controversial or heretical or at all noteworthy. Everybody, that's a good idea, that's a good one, that's a good one. So they were generally well-received. They come to the general conference session. There was an air of expectation that, We've had our discussions, we've had the subcommittee put together the documents, the documents have been published and reviewed, now they've come to the GC for the old-fashioned go-ahead. So at 1883, General Conference Session, a committee of 13, which is still thinking, why a subcommittee? Well, you could think of 13, I think that was a third of the delegates then that time. A 13 or 25%, something like that. A committee of 13 appointed to review the proposed manual, voted unanimously against it. They had the same people who had put together the process, reviewed all the documents, said, good, 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 good. They came together as a committee of 13, looked at the whole thing and said, all in favor say aye. And no one said aye. They said, all opposed. Every person was opposed. So they went back to the floor of the general conference session and said, all right, the discussion we've had for years, the documents you put together, the publications that have gone out, thank you for all your hard work. No. And just like that, the manual died. The general conference president was George Butler at the time. And he was commissioned to write an article in the review explaining the committee's thinking. Because remember, these, these articles have been published to the general membership with the anticipation they were reviewed at the general conference session for acceptance or not. And he had the task as a president to say, here's why we didn't accept what you've been reading. It's fascinating. Um, Elder Butler's article, by the way, was tersely entitled, No Church Manual. <laughs> he commended the author's work in preparing the proposed manual, even stating that it contained, quote, much excellent matter, and gave, quote, Many valuable directions. It was a good job, a lot of good information. We just decided not to take it. The concern wasn't that particular manual, but it was the bigger question of the notion of having a manual at all. That was what the committee wrestled with. Elder Butler, in fact, felt so confident in the church's position against having a church manual that his concluding line of the No Church Manual article was this, quote, It is probable it will never be brought forward again. There were some strong feelings about this. He explained that the GC committee's reasons for rejecting the manual were what he called of a broader character. And uh, if you ever want to study this particular vignette of Adventist history more, I can recommend to you this book, it's called Hindsight by Dave Fiedler. I don't know if any of you have seen or heard of this book, but it's a great one. I got this one marked down to $2.97. Okay, so most Seventh-day Adventist uh, ABC bookstores will have a copy floating around there somewhere. If not, I'm sure you can get one online. I don't know. Uh, check Amazon or something. But there's a little uh, chapter entitled The People of the Book. And it talks about the coming into existence of the seven. It's a fascinating historical read. But included in that is the entirety of George Butler's article explaining why the committee rejected the notion of a church manual. Well, I will summarize it for you here, but if you want to take the full thing, again, I'd recommend that uh, little 
that little book there. But basically, it kind of broke it down into four reasons why the committee rejected having a manual in 1883. Number one, use of a manual might lead away some, especially of the younger ministers, from seeking guidance directly from Scripture and the leading of the Holy Spirit. There was a fear that though whatever was said in here derived directly and accurately from here, there was a fear that people would skip this, go to this, and become unfamiliar with the Scripture itself. Right? So there was a concern. Not that it was bad or misrepresented Scripture. There was just a fear that a condensed, succinct, little bullet-pointed version would get people away from the source. So we don't want to see that happen. Number two, over time, a manual could be regarded not merely as a guidebook, but as a rule book. This perception would tend to make men shallower in their thinking and less original and less self-reliant. So when an issue comes up in the local church, you don't think anymore, what should I do? You just look it up and get the answer. So it, they were afraid it would have the potential of lowering our th- expectations of thought and troubleshooting and originality and self-reliance, right? And you just uh, look for the page 1A, to, so, just fix it. So number one, they were afraid it would get people away from the Scripture. Number two, it was afraid it would bend their thinking to lose the capacity for original and self-reliant thought. Thirdly, since Seventh-day Adventists have no creed but the Bible, amen, a manual could be understood as the first step away from that simple position and toward a creed like other denominations have. Which, by the way, we, we, we today think of like, you know, the 27, which they were, and then the 28 fundamental beliefs. Like they've always been there. Does anybody know when the 27 fundamental beliefs, which are now 28, were originally voted by the General Conference Session? Pretty sure that was 1980. It's a relatively new thing. I was born in an era where we didn't have the fundamental... Now, the beliefs were, of course, there. You understand? But they weren't codified and codexed like a book. It was because... What was the fear? Because that would be a step towards the creed. And if you open up the 28 Fundamental Beliefs book, the very introduction will say, this is not a creed. <laughs> Don't think for a minute that, you be, that, that this is our, you just memorize this rote list of things and now poof, you're a seventh Adventist. No, we derive it directly from the word of God and though they represent those teachings, the scripture is only the scripture. Amen? Right. And the early pioneers, remember their experience, had come out of creedal, highly structured and uh, churches that had kicked them out for their belief in biblical truth about the second coming of Jesus. And there was a big fear, a legitimate concern, that that could lead us down that creedal, institutional, just another denominational path. Okay? And finally, I love this. They put this in there. We've organized the denomination well by God's grace this far without a manual. Why start now? They basically said, we've got all the hard stuff already taken care of. The doctrinal formation, that was years of hard work and study and guidance by the Holy Spirit. But we did it by God's grace. 
And the, the, the establishing of, of, of organization, the naming of the Seventh Adventist Church, the, the, the uh, ownership of properties and whatnot, and the, the hiring of ministers and the organization of conferences, all of this was done without a manual. So now that we've got all the hard work behind us, why do we have to go and write a rule book now? So you understand the four concerns. It was a drift away from Scripture. They were afraid it would make men less thinking, less original, less self-reliant, and just go, I don't know, just see what the book says. Also, they're afraid of the perception that we're headed towards a creed. And finally, they said, pragmatically, we've already done the hard stuff. What can possibly be difficult going forward? <laughs> if only they were alive to see. So in 1883, again, it was so roundly rejected. Again, not that the manual produced was bad. It was the notion of having a manual at all that was so concerning to that subcommittee of 13 in 1883 that they unanimously rejected it, and the General Conference says it again said, quote, it is probable it will never be brought forward again. In, 19, in 1932, the first official Seventh Adventist Church manual was adopted by the General Conference in session. So for 50 years, roughly, that statement was accurate. But things changed. Now, um, the church manual, you can find a history, and when they first produced that, they had a big, long section about, like, we know we rejected a manual, and now we have one, and it seems a little bit, you know, hypocritical. So they have a nice, long introduction about why this happened and how over the time, over those, you know, intervening 50 years or so, they continue to write policies and procedures and everything for the general conference. So they're like, well, if you're already writing them individually, why don't we just codify them and put them in a book and call them a manual? You know, if we're going to have procedures, let's at least put them all down handily. And, you know, there was a, there was a legitimate discussion about that. Again, I would highly recommend to you that Dave Fiedler's book, Hindsight, and the little chapter, The People of the Book. It's just a very condensed, uh, good, helpful discussion. So what do we do today? Some will look at that history and say, the pioneers did not want a manual. Sister White can, agreed with that. It was not a good thing to have. It was only after her death in 1915, some 17 years later, that they actually adopted having a manual. So what we have now is a non-pioneer, non-prophetically endorsed work of man. I can hear that argument. There's probably some legitimacy to that. On the other hand, people could say, yeah, but the church did keep writing policies, and it's not like there was anything wrong with having policies and procedures, and why not put them down in a book? It's, we understand that that's not a creed. Now, we ha do have organizational issues that they couldn't have understood at that point. Surely in this day and age, it was... that sounds good too. Now, I'm not here to be your authority, moral or otherwise, on whether the church manual is a, is a document that we should adhere to, but I will say this. Here, if you have the notes, this is my recommended approach for dealing with the church manual. Because now the, the case has come that some see the church manual as the, the document to which we must answer in the day of judgment, basically. And that is not the case. But others would say, yeah, it's just a trash heap of man and we should disregard it whole. That's not the case either. Let me recommend this, what I believe to be a balanced approach. And if you, don't have, if you have concerns with my approach, please don't email me. 
<laughs> I just don't have time to answer everybody's you know, nickel and dime questions about the manual, but I will put it out this way. There are a variety of views regarding the existence and authority of the Seventh-day Adventist Church manual. This presentation is not intended to be an excursus on every concern that could be addressed. We can just open the floor and talk about the pros and cons ad nauseum. It's not going to help anybody. For our purposes today, it should suffice the following three points. Number one, the Seven Evidence Church Manual is not inspired. Okay? The Bible is inspired. Amen? This writings of Ellen G. White are inspired. Amen? The church manual is not. Now, it's interesting. It's informative. It is inspiring. And I hope it's going to be useful as we go forward. But it's not an inspired document in the sense that the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy are. Let's be clear about that. So, the Seven Amendments Church Manual is not inspired. It undergoes regular revisions, which we do not do at general conference sessions. We don't say, all right, what do we think about Isaiah? Are we still good with 58? We don't do that, you know. But we do have a subcommittee, a writing committee, and they look at the manual and tweak it and change it. And you're going to see some significant, I believe, oh, this is being recorded, Um, interesting edit. The new edition has some changes from, the 2015 edition has some changes from 2010 that if I were on the committee, I probably would have spoken a different suggestion. It just... Reminds me again that this is not an inspired document. It goes under goes revision. We understand, okay? Uh, number two, the SA Church Manual does, however, harmonize with general conference working policies, and it reflects the best practices current in local church governance. Okay? Elder Wilson said it nicely the other day. He said, some people are talking about the working policy and the doctrines of the church and saying that we're equating them. No, 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 no. There's a clear difference. That's an absurd equivalence. However, policies are agreements. We come together and say, I think we should do that. I think we should do that too. All right, let's do it. Now, our agreement does not make it, therefore, thus saith the Lord, but it does make it a good common bond of how we work side by side for the Lord on the earth. Okay? So the SDA Church Manual does, however, harmonize with general conference working policies and reflects the best practices current in local church government. And finally, number three, thus... This is what I hope the takeaway is. The church manual provides sound, practical guidance for local church functions. It's good guidance. Its purpose is not to add to or replace the inspired source of the Bible, the spirit of prophecy, or the leading of the Holy Spirit. So yes, you have a manual, but read your Bible. Yes, it gives recommendations for what you do, but I would ask you to practice this. Before you just turn to the manual, think first. Pray first. Study the scripture in the spirit of prophecy first. Let those inspired sources do its work on your mind. Check in with the church manual and you'll see how those recommendations, nine times out of ten, harmonize beautifully with what the scripture has already led to. Right? Just don't short-circuit the thing and become a mindless automaton. Okay? The church manual is simply a helpful aid for church members and pastors in the routine functions of local church life. The purpose of this seminar session is to look at total member involvement, and a lot of members don't know how the local church is supposed to function. So today, we're going to be mining the manual. I appreciate those who came out despite the bland title. Right? 
As I mentioned earlier, we should just call it, you know, Brussels sprouts and root canals. <laughs> I know it's not that exciting to say, oh, we're going to do a review of a manual. Hope there's an appendix. <laughs> <laughs> I know that's not the most awe-inspiring thing. But let me tell you, friends, this is where the rubber meets the road of local church operations. Knowing how stuff works, being educated and prepared to be engaged in that process, and becoming a leader in those functions. That's what it's about. I could tell you some really interesting stories and funny anecdotes, but that's not going to help you in the local church. Knowing how the operations are supposed to function, that's a tool you can use. Does that make sense? That's why we're mining the manual. So with that introduction, let's take a look at the things. I'm going to quote to you first, and if you have the handouts that we've given here, a lot of it is just literally copy and paste um, reading from the church manual. Um, I've had such an interesting, such interesting conversations have come out in these presentations. This is not the first time I've done this in different groups. Um, especially went to some, some parts of Europe, and uh, I literally made the appeal, uh, please go home and download the church manual and just read it. Right? If you want to move your church forward, read the manual and put it into practice. Because what I have discovered is that the... Um, well, I'll give you a little parenthetical aside, a little biographical sketch of my experience. I was, um, <laughs> I was younger when I began in ministry. Everyone was younger at some point. I had no intention of ever being a pastor. I wanted to be like, you know, the cool youth guy who had dyed hair and, you know, knew all the kids' music and played basketball in the gym on rec night. You know, that's kind of just a, basically a paid kid. That's what I wanted to be. And um, graduated with my degree in, it wasn't theology, it was religious education. Went and got a job at an academy. And um, it came with a church. <laughs> and I was thinking, oh, they'll have chapels on Fridays, that kind of thing, and vespers in the evening. But it was a legitimate, full-on sisterhood of churches church with a board and deacons and elders and regular services and bills. <laughs> and I had no training whatsoever in what to do. So I said, I don't know what I'm doing. I, I didn't say that out loud. I said it to myself. You know, you have to, yeah, that's good, good, but I didn't know what I was doing. And so I got out the church manual. I said, what do we do? How do I run a board meeting? I don't know. Supposed to have one of these every month. I'd never been to a board meeting, much less run one. So I had to look at the manual and figure out how do I make an agenda? What is it we're even going to talk about? What do you do at a church board meeting? Besides, I guess, you know, argue. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. So I went to the church manual and looked it up and made the agenda based on what the church manual at the time said. And it was fascinating to me that in that edition, which is this, this is 15 years ago now, and so we've got several editions later, but in that edition, and it hasn't changed, mind you, that finances weren't even in the top five things you're supposed to talk about. It was way down the list at the very bottom. So I said, all right, we'll do that. So the first thing we're supposed to do is this, the next thing is this. And it was fascinating. We just started going by the manual. And it worked. It's pretty nifty. And I want to bring to your attention, this is, I'll start with the 2010. That was the one that we've had in our hands for the last five plus years that just now is changing. 
So even if you went back like three months ago to the ABC, you'd still find this one. Only the red one has come out very recently, and we'll get to the red one, but I want to show you the one that most of this presentation was built on, okay? 2010. You find this on pages 126 and 127, the work of the board. Now, before we get into that, I want you to just keep in mind the structure of the local church. Someone tell me, please, what is the highest authority in the local church? Somebody said the members. Yeah, in business session, right? So the highest authority in the church is the business session. You're supposed to have one of those at least once a year, preferably maybe two or three times a year, okay? But at least once a year, you're supposed to have a church business meeting. And at the church business meeting, every baptized member of the church is a voting delegate. You hear reports about the finances and the mission and all the different functions and ministries of the church, and you can vote on things. And you can, as the chair allows, raise your hand and make a motion, and you can do huge things at a church business meeting. For instance, the church business meeting is the only place where you can discipline members, where you can receive into membership or censure or even disfellowship members can only happen there. The board doesn't do it. The pastor certainly doesn't do it. The elders don't do it. The church body does it together. Okay. By the way, did you know that every time that you meet Sabbath morning for worship, you are a potential church business meeting? Every time. Have you ever noticed that when a baptism is conducted, they always, they always say something like, now we need to do a little church business first, right? And they take a vote before the baptism. Is there anyone here who would make a motion that we accept brother so-and-so into membership pending baptism? Can I get... And, and of course, the hands go up. And they say, there's a first, there's a second, there's a third. All in favor? Say amen. And everybody says amen. But, you know, it sounds fun, but they're actually conducting church business. If someone were to stand up and say, I object. Never seen it once, by the way. <laughs> Super awkward church service that would be, you know. Right? But it's a legitimate... They'd have to deal with it. They'd have to take it, Right? Um, and we can get into some interesting uh, maneuvering uh, about quorums and stuff like that. If we want to get into the 201 version of this, we can talk. And hopefully we can open up for questions in a minute anyway. But um, the work of the, the highest authority in the local church is not the pastor, the elders, or the board. It is the church and business session. What floors me is how few members show up. The raw, ridiculous power you have in your hands, and you're just walking away from it. Go to your church business meetings. Not to be an obnoxious obstructionist, but just know what's going on and be a voice. That gives you credibility to talk. If you don't like the carpet color, you get to talk about it if you were at the business meeting. If not, shh, you weren't there. Right? Now, the board is simply the executive committee of the church in business session. Okay? So its job is to do the work of the church Every time you want to spend $1,000, you don't need to call a church business session. By the way, money is a good way to look at this. If you want to spend $100, do you even have to call a church board meeting? No, a department leader, if they want to do children's Sabbath or something, they said, I need $100. I don't want to say, oh, good, let's schedule a meeting, right? Now, if you want to spend, say, a few thousand dollars, slow down. Let's get the board together. But if at the board they say, you know what we need? A new parking lot. It's going to be $60,000. You can't take those 12 people and say, all in favor, say, mm-mm. <laughs> you got to take that to a church. So there's gradations of responsibility, right? There's a tiered structure. Departments, board, and the business session. The business session meets only usually just a couple times a year. 
The board meets every month to go over the work of the church. Now, again, we just talked about finances, and we can all sit here and assume that the work of the church is choosing the carpet and the paying the bills. But, friends, that's not the work of the church. What is the work and function of the church? What does the church exist to do? <laughs> yes, to win souls, to evangelize, win the world, and hasten the coming of Jesus. Your board meeting should talk about the thing you exist to do. Does that make sense? This is already written in the manual. Again, from the 2010 version. The gospel commission of Jesus makes evangelism, preaching, uh, the proclaiming the good news of the gospel, the primary function of the church. It is therefore also the primary function of the board, which serves as the chief committee of the church. So far making sense, yes? When, now listen to this, this is already written in the manual. Because some of you are like, how can we get more lay involvement? How can you? It's already in the book you're supposed to be following. This most people aren't following it. When the board devotes its first interest and highest energies to not just evangelism, by the way, every member evangelism, most problems are alleviated or prevented, and a strong positive influence is felt in the spiritual life and growth of members. Okay? So the opening paragraph, before it even says number one, it says, remember that the big picture is soul winning, and that's what the board exists to address. Then it breaks down in order how you're supposed to do that with the agenda. By the way, in the board meetings that I conduct, I always have a copy and paste of the work of the board on the back of our agenda. So if you're ever, why are we always talking about evangelism stuff? Flip over to the other side. Please read the document. Come back. You know. Number one, and it lists out six items of agenda. Number one, the most important item on the agenda should be, the planning, should be planning the evangelization of the outreach or mission territory of the church. Now notice this. In addition, once each quarter, how many quarters are there in a year? Four. How many months are in a quarter? Three. Good, we can do our math, right? Now listen, with that math in mind, think of this. In addition, besides every meeting having the primary function of evangelism, in addition, once each quarter, an entire meeting should be devoted to plans for evangelism. One of your board meetings every quarter should have no other agenda except how are we winning souls. That's in the manual. That's not some newfangled idea. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Let's go on. The board will study conference recommendations for evangelistic programs and methods and how they can be implemented locally, which kind of assumes your conference is thinking about evangelism and they're giving you some guidance. And you as a local church say, look what the conference is recommending. How can we make that work here? It assumes the conference is on board. We don't have time to get into that. <laughs> the pastor and the board will initiate and develop plans for public evangelistic campaigns. So I would urge you, don't have your, and I know that we're not talking necessarily to a room full of pastors, but knowing what the pastor should be doing helps the members, okay? Giving you the tools to evaluate and be involved, okay? Uh, number two, coordinating outreach programs of departments. Pause right there. According to this, every department should be doing what? Outreach programs. Why do you have the departments of the church that you do? Why do you have deacons? <laughs> okay, to, be, to give functional service to those kind of areas, that's true. Why do you have women's ministry or community services or, or, or pathfinders? 
all of those should have a function of outreach in their department. Okay? The church board is responsible for coordinating the work of all church departments. Each department develops its plans for outreach within its own sphere to avoid conflict and timing and competition in securing volunteers and to achieve maximum beneficial results. Coordination is essential. One of the things you want to look at is the calendar. If a men's ministry wants to do a thing and a women's ministry wants to do a thing and they want the same Sunday, bring it to the board so you don't have conflict, right? Yeah. The department also reports to the board on the progress and results of their outreach programs. We should have accountability from the departments. Hey, you did a thing. You did a health expo. How many people came? Did we spend money well? Should we do something better? Should we do it again? Should we boost it up or kill it off? Some accountability. But most of the time we just do a thing, somebody thinks it up, they do it, there's no accountability, they don't know how much money they spent, and it's just a nebulous black hole of good intentions. There should be structure, okay? The board may suggest how department programs can contribute to the preparation, conduct, and follow-up of a public evangelistic campaign. Number three, encouraging the personal ministries department to enlist all members and children in some form of personal outreach or missionary service. We're on agenda item number three, and we're all talking about outreach and evangelism. Training classes should be conducted in various lines of outreach ministry. So personal ministries, have you gotten every member of the church doing something? If not, why not? What are you doing to train them? What are you doing to equip them? How are we giving them resources? That's the work of the board. Check on them. Number four, encouraging the interest coordinator, and some of you are saying the what? Notice that personal ministries and interest coordinator have been mentioned before deacons, elders, anybody else. Now, the deacons and elders are in the room for the conversation, but the work of the church, right? Let's keep going. Encouraging the interest coordinator to ensure that every interest, that is Bible study interest, potential candidate for church membership, is personally and properly followed up by, and it does not say the pastor or the elder or the deacon, it simply says by an assigned layperson. So you should have a report, just like you have a financial report at your board every month, you should have an interest report. We have generated, you know that outreach thing we just talked about in item number two? It generated 12 new interests. Here are their names. Here are the people who are following up with them. Here's the result of their work this month. This assumes that the church understands it's about mission, the departments are running outreaches, and there's follow-up with the interests that have been brought in by the laity. Number four. Number five. We're already on five out of six. We're almost done with our meeting. Number five, encouraging each department to report at least quarterly to the board and to members at business meetings or in Sabbath meetings. So every department, now we've heard the good news here in the board, but us 13 people hearing about it is not the same thing as the whole church. How are you going to let people know? You're going to do it on a Sabbath morning? That's good. You're going to do it at a business meeting? That's good. How are you going to disseminate? It's got to be email, got to be a something. And finally, the last item, number six, receiving regular reports. The board should consider details of church business and receive regular reports of the treasurer of the church's finances. Notice the very last thing you're supposed to talk about is the church's finances. By the way, if you make the mission first and foremost, finances tend to take care of themselves. Didn't Jesus say something along the lines of, seek ye first the kingdom, and then all these things will be added unto you. 
I promise you, if you have a department, if you have a church board that's focused on evangelism, every department is looking for ways to work together and work for the saving of souls. Every member is trained, equipped to do the work of God. They're probably going to be faithful tithe and offering givers too. There's a purpose, there's a function. And by the way, how's the money doing? We're good? Cool. Let's bear our heads for prayer. That's it. The board should study the membership record. And inquire into the spiritual standing of all members and provide visits to sick, discouraged, and backslidden members. The church that, I mentioned this before, the church that I'm currently pastoring has 377 members on the books. Has about 160 in the pews on Sabbath. And I've started asking the, you know, there was a time in the Seventh Adventist Church when accountability was more the norm. You would go to Sabbath school and you would sign in. They would have like, how much literature did you give away this week? You know, those were accountability things. Personally, I'd like to see that come back a little bit. So every week in the church bulletin now, we say last week's church attendance was this. Last week's Sabbath school attendance was this. And we've recently added last week's prayer meeting attendance was this. And it goes triple digit, double digit, single digit. <laughs> but it's a standing rebuke. What I'd like to do is add another one at the top, membership on the books. So in our current church, we'd say 377, 160, 90, 12. I'd also like to add number of people attending the last church business meeting. Let me just give you a little history on this one. Uh, we had a quorum. You have to set a quorum. You know what a quorum is, right? The threshold at which you can actually call it a meeting. Other than that, you're just hanging out. Um, it was 40 people, which was roughly 10% of the church membership. They said, all right, at least 10% of the people need to show up in order to conduct the business of the church. Sounds reasonable. When I arrived at the church, one, two, three, four business meetings in a row, they failed to meet quorum could not conduct the business of the church because not enough people showed up to the meeting to make it an actual meeting. So we had to think, we need to lower the quorum. But how do you lower the quorum if there's not enough quorum there to vote on the lowering of the quorum? <laughs> what do you do? We got creative. Okay, we can either call a church business meeting or every Sabbath morning is a church business meeting. But we don't want to go through the dirty laundry of you all aren't showing up to business meetings. So you don't want that. So what we did was just like you do a nominating committee report. You submit the recommendation for a first reading. Just, you'll notice in your bulletin it says this today. Please review that. If you have any questions, please talk to the elder or pastor. And we'll be taking a second reading on it and a vote next Sabbath. So that the vote has no discussion. You've already had a week to look at it, you know. And we just had a line on, we'd like to lower the quorum from 40 to 25. And the following Sabbath, we took a vote, and there you go because we had two consecutive business meetings called church services. That's how you, but you had to get creative like that, right? And praise the Lord, we haven't messed quorum yet. We have had a meeting of 26, <laughs> but it counts, you know? But I'm telling you, there is, those people who show up to stuff are the ones that move the church. We're going to get into this in the second, in the second session, what, not today, but tomorrow, Okay. But the number one thing you can start doing to move the ship of your church in the correct direction is show up to stuff. Coming to GYC is great, 
but going to prayer meeting is better. Go to Sabbath school. Attend worship service. On time, well-dressed, and prepared. And if you go to a function with food, say a potluck, by all means, bring a dish. You know? Thank you, a good one. <laughs> yes, thank you. Not that thing you're like, oh, that's potluck food. No, 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 no. You bring the best, you know. Have a wedding at Cana type of experience, you know. Now, that was the 2010 edition of the manual. Gives you the preface there of what the church board exists to do and the six agenda items. Very simple. Now, let's move into the future or the present. The SA Church Manual 2015. I don't know if you noticed this, but in the 2015 General Conference session, not only to vote on women's ordination, but there was a change to the purpose of the church. Yep. You got to pay attention, folks. Meetings matter. Listen to this. There's a new statement in the Seventh Avenue Church Manual of 2015 that was not in 2010. It says this. The purpose of the church as the body of Christ is to intentionally disciple members so that they can continue in active and faithful relationship with, Jesus, with Christ and his church. No, that's, I'm not going to, I mean, I'm not going to take up my harangue about language that disciple isn't a word. It's not a verb, at least. It's a noun that comes from a process of discipline, but okay. But notice the language says, the purpose of the church is the body of Christ is to intentionally disciple members. It could be very easily construed to say that the church now exists to build up its own members instead of creating new ones through evangelism. Because that could be a misconception, I have added a footnote in these notes. Okay? It comes from Christian Service, page 69. Because if the purpose of the church is to grow the spirituality of its members, which of course you want to have growth of spirituality amongst your members, but if that's the purpose of the church, let me add this little thought in here. Christian Service, page 69. Let members, I'm sorry, let ministers teach church members that in order to grow in spirituality, they must carry the burden that the Lord has laid upon them, the burden of leading souls into the truth. So you could say, oh, we used to be about soul winning, but now we're about building me up. Well, fine. But if you want to be built up, the only way to do it is to go win a soul. Right? She continues. Those who are not fulfilling their responsibility, that is of the church membership, should be visited, prayed with, labored for. Do not lead people to depend upon you as ministers. Teach them rather that they are to use their talents in giving the truth to those around them. In thus working, they will have the cooperation of heavenly angels and will obtain an experience that will increase their faith and give them a stronghold on God. So if you want a stronghold on God, increase your faith and have a richer experience, be about evangelism, and you will grow as a result. Fair enough? So I agree with this statement as long as it's correctly understood from the inspired council. Okay. Discipleship, it continues to explain, is based on an ongoing lifelong relationship with Jesus. The believer commits to abiding in Christ, to being trained for faithful discipleship by sharing Jesus with others, there we go, as well as to, lead, as to leading other members to also be faithful disciples. The church individually and collectively shares responsibility for ensuring that every church member remains part of the body of Christ. So there's that new... New purpose of the church that was just voted in 2015. 
Now the work of the, of the board has been altered to accommodate the new understanding of what the church exists to do. Are we still on the same page? All right. Now that whole, the gospel commission of making evangelism, proclaiming the good news, is the primary function of the church, this is the primary function of the board, all that is gone now. Now when you go to the section that says the work of the board, it simply says, the board is responsible to, and it lists off now not six things, but ten things. Now, I want to be clear. Those six we just covered before are still in there, but they start at number four and go to number nine. Four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Yeah, my math was right. But there's a new one, two, three, and a new ten. Okay? So I'm not going to go over the same six we just covered, but I will introduce you to the new number one, two, and three, and also the additional ten. Are we making sense? All right, here we go. The new number one for the church board is this. Ensure that there's an active, ongoing discipleship plan in place, which includes both spiritual nurture and outreach ministries. Okay, so it's still there in principle. This is the most important item for the church's attention, for the board's attention. Number two, study membership lists and initiate plans for reconnecting or reclaiming members who have separated from the church. That was one of the last things on item number six. Now it's number two. Okay? Now, again, some people will say that's a great thing. Some people say, I don't know. Regardless, we should be caring for those. I, as a pastor, should help with, along with the elders, audit the membership books to see who's really actually coming to church and work for those who aren't and make an honest reckoning of who is a member of the church, right? That should be a thing to have accurate books. You wouldn't do that with the finances. Do we have $10,000 in the bank? Ah, I think it's about five, but whatever. If you did that with money, you'd be out. But we do it with people all the time. We should keep accurate records of people too. Okay? Number three, train local church leadership in how to encourage intentional spiritual growth in themselves and others. I'm trying to get out of my vocabulary phrases like, I'll be honest with you now. Because it implies that I have been dishonest with you up until that point. But in all candor, I'm not sure I understand that sentence. I've read it over and over and over, and I'm not sure I understand it. I'll read it to you again and tell me if you can understand it. Train local church leadership. So the, past, the board's job is to train the local leadership in how to encourage intentional spiritual growth in themselves. Train the leaders on how to grow themselves. I think that's what it means, and others. So I'm not saying I don't understand it at all, but it definitely is about intentionally raising the spiritual quality of the experience of the leadership and through them the membership. Okay. I would again urge that the best way to raise your spiritual life is to breathe spiritual life into someone else. Okay. My fear is that it can become self-focused. Okay. Either way, and by the way, the new number 10... It's only three words. Promote, Adventist, what do you think the next word is? Education. Okay. Thankfully, what I'm about to read has not been changed at all. Both the 2010 and the 2015 has the following statement at the conclusion of the work of the board section. And it is this. The board should permit no other business to interfere with planning for evangelism. 
Should other business be too time-consuming, the board should appoint committees to care for specific areas of church business, such as finance or church building projects. Such committees will then make recommendations to the board. So as soon as you get, say, 15 minutes into that conversation about the budget or the building project, you say, wait a minute, too much time is being taken at the board for something that should be subcommittee out. Appoint a subcommittee of three or four. All right, building and property finance committee, you're going to look at this. Treasury, you're going to look at this. We're going to keep our eye on the ball up here. A disciplined board will continue to look at all the things. Now, I'm saying this to you because I'm assuming that all of you either are or someday, maybe even soon, will be in a position of leadership in a local church. This is what your board is supposed to do. Okay? Let's go on. It mentioned personal ministries way up there, right? What is the personal ministries department of the church? Well, the personal ministries, if you were at our third session was that ministry that has died and somehow nobody noticed. It used, to be, it used to be profuse. It used to be replete. The church was just filled. with It was the lifeblood. It was the heartbeat of the church. And now it has become a literature rack. Right? Somehow, and everybody's just kind of lost sight of it. The personal ministries, according to the, even the current church manual, is supposed to be the heartbeat of the church. Breathe life into it. Okay? The manual says this. Uh, the 2015 version from pages 100 and 101. Quote, personal ministries provides resources and trains members to unite their efforts with those of the pastor and officers in soul-winning service. It also has primary responsibility for programs assisting those in need. Okay, but notice the first line. Provides resources, thus the literature, right? But also trains members in how to work. Most churches are doing well to provide the literature at all, much less the training that's supposed to go along with it. That's the personal ministries department's job. It describes the council of the personal ministries department as this. The personal ministries council guides the outreach efforts of the church and works under the direction of the board. The council should meet at least once each month. Now, how often does the board meet? Once each month. So there's two meetings every month. And should consist of the pastor, an elder, the treasurers, and leaders of other departments. That sounds strikingly like the board. Right? It's kind of a miniature, it's an executive committee of the board, which is itself an executive committee of the whole church. Right? It's the primary subcommittee of the board, if you will. That's the pastor, the treasurer, an elder, and other department leaders. And what's the purpose of personal ministry? Is to get every member involved in evangelism. We used to call it lay ministry, by the way. I think the reason was that they didn't want the continued disconnect between clergy and laity. So they just called it personal ministries. Also, I think that people were making fun of it and saying, I'm going to go home on Saturday afternoon and do my lay ministries, right, and take a nap. Um, but it's the personal ministries now. The council should meet once a month. Anyway, the personal ministries council may assign subcommittees for a specialized task. All sub subcommittees report to the personal ministries council. The personal ministries council and leader are responsible for organizing small group ministries. So small groups is not something that you have like, a new workshop that comes in like it's an outside thing we're going to try. It's written into the manual already. The personal ministries leader trains and directs members in outreach service and chairs the personal ministry council. The leader reports, now notice, I want you to check, catch this. It might fly by. The leader, the personal ministries leader, reports in the monthly church outreach Sabbath service. The What? The monthly church outreach Sabbath service. Apparently, and we'll get into this in a little bit later on, 
once every month, you should have an outreach mission Sabbath. Where the whole purpose of that is to hear reports about what's been going on and exciting testimonies for those who have been reached by our outreach projects. I guarantee you that there are many, many churches who would have a hard time doing that service once a year. Much less every third Sabbath, or every third Sabbath of the month, you know what I'm saying, is our outreach Sabbath. Let's get testimonies ready. You've got to have a, that many testimonies every month. Yep. What does that imply? That there's something going on to talk about, right? The leader reports in the monthly church outreach or mission Sabbath service and business meetings about local church, uh, local, about total outreach activities of the congregation. Assistance may be assigned to coordinate the Bible correspondence school that every church is supposed to have. The Bible correspondence school for giving Bible studies. Every church should have a school for giving Bible studies. It just assumes it. Bible evangelism, literature distribution, in-gathering or equivalent appeals, small group ministries, member training, and other soul-winning programs. So notice that, the, and I'm trying to make this as clear as I can, the whole purpose of the church is to win souls, and the highest authority is the church in business session. The board has its primary goal of winning souls and discipling members. The primary subcommittee of the board is the Personal Ministries Council, and its job is to train and equip every member for missionary service and to make sure that every month we have a report on it in the church service. From the top all the way down to from the biggest collaborative to the lowest individual, every part of the church is built on outreach and soul winning. The church does not exist for you to hear a good sermon every Sabbath. Now let's go back to that Bible school thing. The Bible school coordinator. Anybody in here the Bible school coordinator for the local church? Yes, one, two, and a half. Two, 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 full two, full two people. All right, good. From the manual, page 101, the Bible school coordinator organizes and coordinates the church's Bible school outreach ministry to the community. The coordinator should work closely with the pastor, the interest coordinator, and the personal ministries leader. There's that term again, the interest coordinator. Is their job to coordinate things to make them more interesting? No. Wouldn't it be great if you had an interesting coordinator, an, an interesting coordinator, right? Like you leave church, you're like, that wasn't very interesting. Let's go talk to the coordinator. Why don't you put together something a little more interesting for us? No, no it's not our interest in the church service. It's their interest in Jesus Christ, right? And they're supposed to coordinate those who are interested in learning more about the truths of the Word of God now, here's their job description, still in this current manual. So I'm raising it high. <laughs> An interest coordinator should be elected to make sure that interests developed through the church's outreach mission activities are cared for promptly. All right, let's walk through it again. The church exists to win souls. The board exists to execute that mission, and it is a collaborative with all the leaders and department heads. In each of their departments, they are to do outreach programs. Yes? And through those programs, they receive interests. Why do you do a health expo? Yes, it's to check blood pressures and to get interests. Why do we have vacation Bible school? 
to get interests. The whole purpose of anything we're doing is to make people interested in Jesus and the truth of his word. So as those outreach programs go on, let's say that you had a health expo and that from that you had, say, eight interests come in. Would you, hey, I, I appreciate it. Here's your real health age. Here's your cholesterol, whatever it is you do. And uh, by the way, would you be interested in Bible studies? Because, you know, the one who made this body created you in his image and wants, you know, just give him a quick little one-sentence spiel. Would you like it? Would you be interested? And somebody's going to say, you know, I probably, not only should I stop eating, you know, obviously I need to lose a little weight and I could probably get back to God. It wouldn't be the worst idea. And they're just casually, sure, I might be interested. But there's something in there. So you've got a little stack of cards with names, addresses, phone numbers, emails. What happens with those cards? They go to the, careful now, the interest coordinator. Now, is the interest coordinator's job to carefully and reverently bring those to the pastor? No. I'm going to read this verbatim. Listen to this. Again, an interest coordinator should be elected to make sure that interests developed through the church's missionary outreach are cared for promptly. This person is a member of the board and the personal ministries council and works directly with the pastor and chairman of that council. Duties of this office include, and there's only three, number one, keeping an organized list of all interests received by the church. So you should have an interest coordinator at all, and their primary job is to list out all the current interests. If I were to ask you how many Bible studies are going on at your church right now, would you be able to answer? Are there five? Are there 50? How far along in the process? Are they just getting started? Are they on lesson 12? What resource are they using? What member is working with them? What, what's the status? We should hear about it every month, just like we hear about the finances. We should hear about the interests, because that's our purpose as a church. Number two, assisting the pastor and chairperson of the personal ministries council in enlisting and recruiting qualified members for follow-up service. So not only do they have a list of interests, they should also have a list of people who would follow up with those interests, and those people are members. Not pastors, not Bible workers, not employees, they're just members who are willing, if an interest comes up, to follow up with them and give them the Bible study. So the interest coordinator's job, I know this sounds a little technical, is to coordinate the work with those interests. Here's the interests, and here's Sister Sally over here who needs a Bible study. Put them together. And Sister Sally, don't wait a month. We want it done in two days. If someone, by the way, if someone comes to the Health Expo on a Sunday, this is my personal philosophy, this is not in the manual, so you can disregard it. But I think the church should respond faster than Amazon Prime. We should act like this stuff is important. Because it is, right? They should get a knock on the door. Hi. I'm with, and here's a great thing. Don't just say, I'm from the whatever Kalamazoo Seventh-day Adventist Church. Say, I'm with BibleStudyOffer.com. Or I'm with, John, can we say it is written? Are we allowed to invoke that term? All right, he's good with it. All right. <laughs> I'm affiliated with it is written. And I, I see that you asked for uh, some Bible study guides. I'm here to give them to you. Hope you enjoy them. Would you like me to study with you? 
If not, that's okay. But I'll come back next week at this time. This is a good time to follow up. I just want to make sure you got what you asked for. We're so excited you came to the health fair. Have a great day. You don't have to be obnoxious, but be diligent, right? The interest coordinator. Number three, I love this. Got to hear it. Presenting to the board a monthly report on the number of interest received and followed up. Final sentence is the real kicker. When an interest is sufficiently developed, it should be shared with the pastor. Who's doing all that development of the interest before the pastor even? Church members. So they're the ones doing the outreach. They're the ones gaining interest. They're the ones following up. They're the ones giving a Bible study. And when they're sufficiently developed, like this one could be ready for the kingdom, pastor, I'd like to introduce you to the person I've been working with. So the pastor should walk around. Let's say you have a multi-church. By the way, if a church was run like this, would the pastor have to be stuck at one church? No. You know, there are parts of the world where the pastor just kind of goes around to multi... I'm not talking two or three districts up in the UP. For anybody who knows Michigan, you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about there's places where there's 10, 20, 30 or more churches for one pastor. And you know what they spend their entirety doing, their entire life doing? Holding evangelistic campaigns, checking in the churches already established, and baptizing the new members, organizing them for service, and then moving on and doing it again. This is why in that earlier presentation I said that the places in the world where the church is growing fastest are the places where there are the fewest pastors. And it's not because the pastors here are doing a bad job. It's they're just doing the wrong job. They're doing your job. And many church members aren't doing any job. And I want to be clear, when I say doing a job, I don't mean holding an office. I don't care if you're an ordained elder or deacon or if you have a title or if you're on the board. Every member should be studying with someone to bring them into the faith. Every member. That's the interest coordinator's job. Most people, when I go give this presentation, not only don't have an interest, they've never even heard of the concept That's why I say the most radical, lay-driven document we have in the Seventh Adventist Church is the one we vote on as a world church every five years, just nobody ever reads the thing. It's for free, by the way, not the hard copy. You do have to pay for that one, but just download it. Do a little Google search, SDA Church Manual, bloop, PDF, download. Make a little link right there on the cover of your, read it. Open it up in iBooks. You can flip through and you don't have to lose your page. It's all just sitting there. Anyway, we must go on. Outreach services. We talked about that monthly outreach service. Continuing from the manual. Uh, SA Church Manual, page 122. The first Sabbath of each month is, it does not say should be or could be, it says is, <laughs> the church outreach or missionary Sabbath. This worship service focuses on lay evangelism. What kind of evangelism? Lay evangelism. And may feature plans and activities of various departments. So wouldn't it be great if, you know, name a department of the church, anyone? Sabbath school, thank you. What if Sabbath school was responsible for this one? You have a few personal testimonies, then Sabbath school gets up and says, here's what we've been doing as our department, and here's the plans for the future, and here's how we need your help. Thank you so much. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. And there's your church service. It's testimonies and plans, watching the Lord leading, making an appeal for everyone to be involved, and heading to potluck. 
once a month. On page 182, it revisits this concept. In order to strengthen and develop the outreach missionary spirit among our church members, auxiliary personal ministries meetings might be conducted in one or more of the following ways. You might want to add, in addition to all of those things you're already doing, you might think that's not quite enough. So why don't you add this? A, the 10-minute weekly personal ministries meeting held each Sabbath, usually following the close of the Sabbath school and preceding the church preaching service. So in between Sabbath school and church, the old intermission time, if you got a 10-minute block, why don't you do every week more testimonies? Or highlight, this week we want to talk about this glow tract, or this Bible study guide, or this sharing booklet, or this B- the DVD that we have, or the website. Highlight some way either they can be trained for effective service or reports on the services that are going on. But every week, 10 minutes. In addition to the full service you do every month. B, a midweek meeting combined with the weekly prayer meeting. On this occasion, the first part of the service may be given to a devotional message followed by a season of prayer, remembering that worship is in vital and spiritual growth in preparation for service, right? It's not to take the place of prayer, but don't just pray and leave, pray and think and work. The remainder of the time may be devoted to training for lay evangelistic service. Instruction in soul winning methods is presented and the members are given opportunity to present and discuss problems they have met in lay evangelism. By the way, will you meet and encounter some problems and problem people? Yes. Is the time to discuss those pains in your side the Sabbath morning service? (laughs) No. But it might be a good thing to have a a, a format where people can get together and say, yes, we've had these successes, but I'm also running into this guy who's always doing this. And there's this one sister who keeps canceling. What should I do? And you kind of troubleshoot and learn from others and sharpen as iron sharpens iron, you know, your work. You should have a format for that every week where all those people doing the work come together and talk about the work and glean from each other's strength, right? Now, what about member care? And I have no idea, no clue what time it is. When does this stop? 15 minutes ago? Are are we serious? I am so sorry. <laughs> all right. See, the manual is interesting, other people said. Amen? All right, Amen. let's finish. Yeah, all right, member care, member care, member care. Pastors and elders, what is it? who's going to care for all the members if everybody, all the members are caring for other people? Well, the manual addresses that too. You think, oh, the pastor does visitation. The pastor does some visitation. Let me explain the difference between a pastor, an elder, and a deacon as it's already written in the books. In the conference committee, if, and I love this language, if the conference committee, I forgive you, if the conference committee assigns a pastor or pastors to the congregation, notice that's an if. If you happen to have an assigned pastor from the conference, it's not an expectation, but if you do, the pastor or senior pastor, if more than one, should be considered the ranking officer and the local elders as assistants. So they're the assistant pastor function, right? Since their work is closely related, they should work together harmoniously. The pastor should not assume all lines of responsibility, but should share these with the elders and other officers. Now notice this. The pastoral work of the church should be shared by the pastor and the elders. In counsel with the pastor, the elders should visit members, minister to the sick, 
foster prayer ministries, arrange or lead out in anointing services and child dedications. Encourage the disheartened and assist in other pastoral responsibilities. So they counsel with the pastor, and the pastor, of course, can do his part, but he's just one elder among others, right? And the responsibility is shared among them all, okay? Because, now listen to this, because the pastor is appointed to the position in the church by the conference, the pastor serves the church as a conference employee, is responsible to the conference committee, and maintains a sympathetic and cooperative relation to and works within harmony with all the plans and policies of the local church. The primary responsibility of the pastor is not to the local congregation, it's the conference. And I know that sounds like heresy. He's our pastor. Mm, ish. Right? Who are the people that are there on the ground that have the spiritual nurture and care of the church over the long term? Those are the elders. That's why Paul left Titus and Crete to organize, to set in order the things that are lacking to and appoint elders in every church. Right? It's a biblical concept. Elders who are elected by the church are responsible to that body and its board. This is in the manual. From the elders' handbook, by the way, I'm almost done, I promise. Planning for home visitation should be a regular part of the elders' meeting. Visitation can be assigned to, local, to leading church members gifted and trained in that particular ministry. Such programs are often called a parish or under-shepherd plan, where membership is usually divided into geographic zones. An elder, assisted by deacon or deaconesses, could be in charge of a parish zone. The pastor and elders lead out in the visitation plan and other programs that build spiritual strength in the church. By, by the way, and you can get this on the document, it also includes deacons, deaconesses, and finally every church member. So the pastor helps organize with the elders, and they divvy it up into parish zones. They get deacons and deaconesses involved, and deacons and deaconesses pull in other members. So who's caring for the members? The members. By the way, who fed the 5,000? Right? It wasn't just Jesus, and it wasn't just his disciples. Why were they organized in ranks? So they could feed each other. Why do we organize as a church at all? to build up our own spiritual walk, and the best way to do that is work together for the winning of souls. Finally, I'm going to close with this inspired counsel. You can find this on Christian, uh, Christian Service, pages 66 to 69. I would encourage you, just go ahead and read the whole book. Preaching is a small part of the work to be done for the salvation of souls. God's Spirit convicts sinners of the truth, and He places them in the arms of the church. The ministers may do their part, but they can never perform the work that the church should do. Ministers may preach pleasing and forcible discourses, and much labor may be put forth to build up and make the church prosperous, but unless its individual members shall act their part as servants of Jesus Christ, the church will, never, will ever be in darkness and without strength. The minister should not feel that it is duty to do all the talking and all the laboring and all the praying. He should educate helpers in every church. Let different ones take turns in leading the meetings and in giving Bible readings, and in so doing they will be calling into use the talents which God has given them, and at the same time be receiving a training as workers. And finally this one, the best help ministers can give the members of our churches is not sermonizing, but planning work for them. Give each one something to do for others. Help all to see that as receivers of the grace of Christ, they are under obligation to work for him. And let all be taught how to work, especially should those who are newly come to the faith be educated to become laborers together with God. Let me ask you a question. I know it's not the typical lecture, seminar thing, but did today's presentation at least make sense? Was it clear? The Seventh Adventist Church was built to be a lay-driven organization, and it still is. 
It's not some historical relic that we dust off and look in a museum. Hot off the presses, still says all those things. So when you go back to your local church, my appeal to you is, number one, read the manual. I'm not saying it's inspired, you get what I'm saying, but it's a great guide to how the church should run based on biblical principles. And start putting them in whatever your corner of the shop is, start moving the ship, and that's the title of our next sermon. How, uh, sermon, presentation. <laughs> how to start moving the ship of the local church in that direction. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this day. Thank you that you give us the privilege of cooperation with you in this grand work of salvation. Please forgive us where we have fallen short. Help us to redeem the time and let every member of your movement be a missionary for you. For we pray it in Jesus' name. This message was presented at the GYC 2016 conference when all has been heard in Houston, Texas. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.